And welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Rick Perry. If you'd like to introduce yourself to our audience, Rick. Howdy, I'm Rick Perry, and I work mainly on Dimension 20 as a production designer and creative producer. And I did want to get into, like, since you have a different profession than a lot of the people that you might find on, like, a podcast like this, I really wanted to talk about your profession and how you ended up there. So let's start with art school. Like, what made you decide that you were going to get into art school? And, like, where were your first passions? Yeah, well, uh, I guess I, I've always been kind of a visually oriented person. Um, you know, growing up, I made a lot of art and, and uh, my mom was uh, was a grade school art teacher. So um, that was a thing that was like a value that we had and stuff. Um, and so then when it was time to go to college, uh, visual arts seemed like the thing for me. And, and so I uh, went to I'm from Texas, uh, grew up in like rural Texas outside of Austin. And I went to a, um, a state university called uh, University of North Texas. And I studied uh, drawing and painting there. Um, and, uh, you know, I really didn't know what I was going to do with that degree. It was kind of like, as I was told by many people, like kind of a dead end path or just there was no career prospects. And it's actually something I've thought about a lot, you know, as an adult now is um, or, or a creative professional is that, you know, when I was a kid, there really wasn't anyone around around me or my kind of family or whatever that that was a creative professional whose whose job was to to play music or to be an artist or create things or whatever. And so it kind of didn't feel like a real legitimate field uh, when I studied it, but I, I did. Yeah, I remember growing up personally, uh, being into like reading and writing and uh, a little bit of drawing and like performance and stuff. And I suppose now that you mentioned, I guess it's a good thing that my my mom also was like a drama kid uh, growing up because there was a kind of positive reinforcement. I don't know if I would have pursued it after like my initial first interest as a teenager because I started writing I think when I was like 12 or 13 like seriously and I turned in this 80,000 word uh, draft to my like eighth grade English teacher and uh, you know after that and like because of my parents like being supportive at least um, like I could when I even when I got grounded they wouldn't ground me from the computer they would just like ground me from the internet (laughs) so I could still you know write and stuff like that I remember uh, my brother complaining about it one time and uh, my I remember my mom saying like you know if you want to be creative and you want to paint or you want to draw or you want to write like we're not going to take that away from you so I remember that as a kid. So that's really cool. Um, And you attended school where? Uh, University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. How? Denton, Texas. Is that near Wichita Falls at all? Not exactly. It's it's north of uh, Dallas and Fort Worth. It's kind of uh, about... Uh, 30 miles or 30 minutes north of Dallas Fort Worth and it's kind of uh, up not quite to Oklahoma it's sort of in its own area up there it's a great town it's a very um, uh, you know this amazing music there there the jazz school there is like a world world class uh, like maybe the best school in the world for jazz and um, it's just a very kind of arty arty kind of like progressive cool like college town so it was a good good place to, to go and sort of you know grow uh, and study and stuff yeah, did you uh, attend any of those shows uh, when you were there at college and like you went to jazz shows and things like that? Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, my the dorm that I lived in for I think it was the first year and a half or two years. Um, they uh, it was the it was the one right across from the music building, so it was like mostly art kids and music kids and uh, just constant people practicing and people you know checking out. There was just jazz playing all the time, all over the place. So uh, you you got it, you know whether you it was just by osmosis you know so I, I definitely grew an appreciation for jazz and and uh also just it's just impressive being around people who are like so incredibly um skilled at, at uh at that kind of thing you know just like watching people play and seeing their dedication and uh very inspiring and just it was, a, it was for me who was not super musical it was kind of a very uh inspiring backdrop you know how did you end up going from there did you move to california next uh so i finished school there and i kind of hung around a little bit and then i went and lived in mexico for a little bit and went to europe you know backpacking for a couple months i had some friends who had moved to new york city and so i kind of saved up some money and moved to new york and um, lived in like brooklyn and manhattan for a couple years and that's where i got into film production you went backpacking like right after school to mexico and then europe yeah so was that like a direct path or like was that in the plan or did you just end up going that way 
Um, the Europe thing was like, you know, very like, like a lot of people do that, you know, especially then. And, and so it was like, oh, that sounds awesome. You know, I want to go do that. And, uh, and so I did. And, um, you know, I think my grandma gave me her air miles or something for, uh, a graduation gift and everything. And, uh, and then I was back in Denton and then some buddies had been going down to Mexico to like go be down there and study Spanish and sort of just have an adventure, I guess, or whatever. And, and, uh, so that sounded pretty good. I went and did that for a couple months. Yeah, what a uh, what a young twenty year old thing to do, just just totally. just go somewhere and what a different time it was back then. Wow. Yeah. What did you? How did you end up getting involved in movie and television sets? Um. So I was uh, living in New York and um, I was working at a Comp USA, which I don't think they're around anymore, but it's like a computer kind of big box store kind of like a best buy but more for computers and uh was working at, at this big store on broadway in manhattan and s- selling macs you know kind of kind of always been sort of a computer person you know as well and um and it was horrible you know i just not <laughs> a salesperson is not my uh my um cup of tea and uh it was miserable and and uh i I, I had heard that there was this thing that you could do called being a production assistant in film and t- television. You know, I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't the field that I'd studied at all. And, uh, you know, I, I it just sounded really neat. And so I saved up some money and just quit my job. And, and then I just um, reached out to every person I could find on all, you know, online on like Craigslist and all these different things. And I worked for free, uh, you know, for, a month or so on like student films and kind of anything that, that any chance I could take. And, um, and then I started getting calls to come and work for paid gigs. And, and then after like, by the time three months were up, I was like having to turn down jobs, you know, and I just felt like, Oh, wow, I'm, I have a, I have a job now, you know? And, and, uh, it was kind of a revelation for me because like I said, I, I kind of didn't really think I had any sort of prospects in a creative, like an actual creative job. It just seems so distant and not a real thing. And working in film was actually a lot like, it was a lot like these experiences I had in college where I would work on these kind of collaborative performance art projects with friends where it was like this highly collaborative kind of clandestine, like, you know, really intense thing where you're working 12 hours a day and you're, and you're doing this sort of like kind of esoteric work that like is hard to even describe to people what happens on a film set unless they work on film sets. And it, and it's very fleeting. It has this ephemeral quality where you like, you, you all work really hard and then they get the shot and then you just take it all apart and it goes away and it doesn't exist anymore except in that film version. So like all those things, that kind of romantic thing of it and you get paid for it, you know? And it's like, wow, this, I, for the first time in my life was like, this is a field that I could see myself working in, you know, forever and I could make money and I can, you know, live a life and have a family and all this sort of stuff. It was like pretty, uh, I was hooked, you know? Yeah, there's something, the way that you describe that about movie sets being ephemeral and you putting all this work into this one moment, I feel like that is sort of the social glue or like the uh, the lubricant for like creating like really lasting bonds with people because you share this very intimate thing that occurred that only you and this small group of people have. Have you made like a lot of like really long standing friends in your life that way or... Yeah, I have. Um, it, it's a it's a funny thing, you know, because each time you come onto a project, whether it's a movie or you know, that's going to be like a four or five month project, or if, or if it's maybe just a commercial and it's like a week and a half or something, um, you you know, a new group of people assembles usually. Like even if it's a, a crew that's worked together before, there's some people that weren't available or other people that have joined, and so it's this new kind of like family or little group that forms, and you have this really intense experience. And then you and then you disband, you know, and um, and so I think there are people that I have worked with at the very on my very first jobs that I still are still very good friends. And, and I think you're right there. There is a um, there is a kind of like we shared that experience together kind of thing that doesn't go away. And even people who who have gone on to do, you know, big things and we don't even work in the same kind of arenas anymore. Uh, thinking of a friend who's like an Emmy award-winning production designer who has his own company and all these people working for him, but like, we're still on the same, we're still pals, you know, and we have this kind of bond that is from 20 years ago, you know? Yeah. I feel like, um, the, at least, uh, from what I understand, like as an outsider's perspective, everyone that I've talked to for those sort of award shows, it's like always kind of like, well, you're just like rolling on the ice or you're flipping the coin. And a lot of the time 
it doesn't feel like you either have earned something like that and it doesn't necessarily change much about you as a person because like it's always like something that you did like a year or two years ago and you're so divorced from like all of the the toil that was involved with doing that work that you're just like oh okay now i have an award for that thing i did a while ago yeah it's true you sort of very much live in the moment uh what have you done lately or what's the last thing you did and it's definitely like a freelance thing is like it, it gets a little better with time but uh and, I, and i'm lucky to have been working on the same show for for over five years but usually it's like you get off a, you get off a gig and it's like and you get this kind of like relief for a few days and then you start getting this twitch of like when's the next thing coming what's the next gig you know even though they always come but there's this fear that is like oh maybe i'll never work again you know it doesn't really go away yeah Absolutely. You've done work for like everybody from like Coca-Cola to Uber to Viacom. You did a thing with Amy Vorpal. What's it like to find gigs as a freelancer within your trade? Well, uh, it's hard at first. It's really hard that that kind of um, uh, even if you're if you're starting from scratch or even just like moving to a new city or, or trying to move from like movies to um, commercials or even trying to move from like low budget movies to like mid budget to union to like high. I mean, all these like kind of transitions are really tricky um, because uh, in the, in the industry, there's very little room for failure or kind of, um, you know, not doing a good job. Right. Uh, it, it's just sort of like the stakes are really high because it's, there's so much money involved usually. And like, in, in this idea that all this concerted effort has to come together in this one singular moment. So, you know, you can't be late and, you, and the thing that you are supposed to be making needs to be ready to go and whatever. So, um, so people tend to be really cautious about who they hire. And the other thing is like, you know, because you are going to be working so intimately with folks for like 12 plus hours a day, you know, five or six days a week, like, you know, you don't want to work with somebody that you're not going to get along with or who's a jerk or whatever, you know, so, so um, that stuff is really important. And, and what tends to happen is people tend to hire people based on word of mouth only. Uh, so it's like, you know, I go to the people that I have worked with in the past first that I like and that I know are good and, and see if they're available. And if they're not, then I ask for referrals from them for other people that they may have worked up with in the interim who they and there's this whole thing about who you refer is kind of like, you know, you don't want to refer someone that's bad because then that kind of comes back to you in a way. Um, so there's like this whole that's a it's a serious boundary, you know, to to get through and um, uh yeah. So, so at this point for me, it's mostly just word of mouth, you know, um, if somebody might approach me about a, a job and, and, um, and then we kind of talk through it and, and, and maybe kind of pitch some ideas or give an, a cost estimate or something like that, you know, but, uh, when you're starting out, it can be, it can be pretty tricky. Yeah. Just starting out, you mentioned doing work for free essentially in order to build a portfolio. And that is definitely something that happens through a lot of different fields. I know the first few shows that I put together online, I essentially was the investor for them because obviously no one else is going to pay for them. Um, and moving forward with like that in mind, like what do you think were the lessons that you learned working for free that were invaluable when you started doing paid gigs? Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really it's it's kind of a bummer that it's that way, you know. It's just it's it's not. I don't think it's cool to work for free, you know. And um, I mean, I can appreciate when it's like a passion project and you're like a peer or a collaborator, you know. But like working just for experience, I think it's not really that great. Maybe if it's like a formal kind of internship and there's like a school that is establishing boundaries and things like that, it's something that I try to like do differently, you know. And I try to hire people that maybe don't have a lot of experience or you know give people a shot or a a chance or whatever um when it's possible um, um but things i learned from that are uh um through that whole journey are um you can start out you know whatever it is that you want to do you know like say you want to be a production designer right which is kind of like the apex of the art department and um you can start out by just being a production designer you know you don't necessarily have to be a production assistant or or a carpenter or whatever those things will help you and and those are skills you can pick up and it sort of definitely helps to have the more experience you have the better but you could you could production design a, a short film you know maybe for free or a really low fee or whatever uh and start building that kind of 
credits and experience and stuff. It's probably probably good to kind of do both a little bit to sort of like get out there and be a, a production designer on things, but also to do these, you know, maybe gigs that pay a little more that are like a set dresser or a scenic painter or whatever uh, to get that experience and also to kind of keep you keep you above water. But there's a tricky thing that happens if you sort of try to really climb your way up is that um, it's like kind of like a golden handcuffs thing. It's like if you get really good at being a set carpenter, for instance, uh, and um, I, I joined the union as a set carpenter working on uh, Prison Break uh, in Dallas. Um, and it was awesome. It was a great experience. But then it was sort of like, wow, I'm a really good carpenter. And and uh, yes, I was writing screenplays and doing other things, but no one really cares about that. Right. They just know like, oh, Rick, that that guy could really build something. Let me hire him. And and you can say, I got a screenplay or I got an idea. And they're like, I don't really care. I just want you to build this thing for me. So these are like these traps that you can get into and they're hard to kind of get out of too. So that's like a kind of a pitfall of, of this industry. Yeah, definitely. It feels like a lot of the time you can get even typecast, even if you're part of like the production crew or yeah. something like that, because they you've built up your reputation around doing this thing so being diverse in your skill sets isn't necessarily the best way to break in a lot of the time it seems yeah i think just kind of getting out there and trying to do what you're what you want to be doing like in a full-throated kind of way is 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 important you know maybe it's not the only angle that you should be working but it definitely seems like one that i kind of wish i had tried sooner yeah doing uh building different skill sets well i just mean like kind of like you know, if you if you want to be a director, you should direct things, even if they're just things you shoot on your phone. You know what I mean? And then also do other learn other skill sets. But but um, don't don't like be like, well, I'm not going to I'm going to wait to direct things until I get like 10 years of experience or until someone invites me to be a director. You know what I mean? I think you should just get out there and do it. Yeah, absolutely. Pursuing passion projects is definitely a great way to build your portfolio and like figure out, do I actually like this enough to pursue sure. this as a full time gig? Do I enjoy this enough to like deal with all the other heartaches that come with the industry in general and like the production yeah. schedule and like how difficult it can be to keep up with the pace of things? Um, because if you're not as into it, then maybe you just find a different job and you stay doing it as a hobby, right? Super cool. Okay. Um, how did you end up working on Dropout? Um, so uh, a, a friend of mine, actually, I... Uh, I, I, I worked in the industry for a few years, you know, like 10 years or so. And then I, I went back to school at UCLA for um, writing and directing. I, I did a MFA there. And one of my classmates from that was producing uh, something for College Humor and uh, producing um, sketches. And, and so she hired me to do a couple of sketches for them in the summer before Dimension 20 was a thing. And, and, uh, and then it was at a time when College Humor was spinning up a lot of new content. They were investing a lot of money into these big new shows. It was before Dropout had launched. And that was kind of like they were put, building all this new content in order to launch Dropout. And one of the shows that they were going to do was this actual play show, D&D actual play show. Lucretia, my friend who who had produced those sketches, she got brought on to produce this actual play show for College Humor. And she knew that I like played D&D and, and, um, and we love working together and stuff. So she uh, brought me in to talk to them about about that seemed like it was going to be a good fit and so i i came on board uh and at that time it was like super early in the development process of the show um it was actually called fantasy high at that point was it called dimension 20 because it was just a one-off kind of thing and and they the first idea for a set was like a uh, like a high school classroom like a fantasy high school classroom and it sort of evolved like we weren't even going to use miniatures necessarily at first it was like i got to be part of this uh, development process by by suggesting things and 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 they would suggest things and I would bring back you know visuals and ideas and which was awesome it was like one of the most gratifying uh, production design experiences I've ever had and and um, uh, yeah and then we we thought that season and then we just keep shooting more seasons I, I was smiling because it's like the that's like one of the everyone has like one story about how like college was actually a good networking opportunity but. <laughs> That's like what everybody recommends. It's like, hey, go to college to network. Uh, but for you, in your case, it ended up turning into a, a five-year gig. You said so. You've been working for five years for College Humor slash Dropout, right? Yeah, yeah, over almost five and a half now. Yeah. Would you say that uh, a majority of your time then is for Dropout currently? Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, 
I, I'm freelance still, so it's kind of like season to season. And um, then there's other projects like we've been doing these auctions um, and just other little things that are D20 related that pop up. Uh, so, so when those projects are going on, I, I work for them and then and then I'll have downtime when I'm not working for them. But but yeah, I, I, I stay pretty busy working for D20. How do you, and we're going to like segue briefly into this if you're okay with it. How, sure. You mentioned um, before we started recording, so you have a family. Um, mm-hmm. I have a family as a freelancer. How are you balancing that? And like, what is important to you as far as like things that you make certain to do for your family to make sure that you are still being like a good family um, family member to them, parent? Yeah, well, I'm taking a big deep breath because I think it's a real constant struggle. Uh, my my wife is also uh, in the industry. She's an editor. So we both have these crazy jobs in the sense that um, they uh, they um, they're kind of irrational, that they don't really care about our schedules or our lives. They don't care that, you know, your child is sick or potty training, really. You know, it's just the nature of production. And um, they also often require, you know, 12 hour days or sometimes more if there's like a crazy, a, a really intense deadline that we're trying to get to. And um, it's really tricky balancing that with both of us. We have two kids. We have a, a, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. And um, uh, so it's a constant thing we're thinking about is is how to um, be good parents and have a good family life and, you know, and be connected in our relationship and stuff. Um, it, it takes a lot of effort. On the other side, we, you know, we both have a lot of um, understanding and appreciation for what the kind of freelance film industry life is like you know and a lot of grace for each other and we try to support each other but uh yeah i don't know i i i have been doing a thing in the last like year or two where uh i just don't always work 12 hour days i i try to work less some days if the, if there's not a need to you know if i can get away with less i it, my wife and i live on an island up here in uh, washington and um kind of remote like home steady place and so i have a shop here and i build a lot of stuff from home um and we've actually you know since covid been building a lot of stuff up here and I have model makers come up here and stay up here sometimes sort of create like a little like art art commune, you know, so that, uh, you know, because I would rather be here than in Los Angeles. Um, but but I do have to go down there when it's time to shoot to to kind of finish the sets and, and do the load in and, and do the shoot and stuff. So, yeah. So I guess it's kind of like that's just a, that's a thing I'm working on every front I possibly can, you know, trying to to set boundaries and and part of it is like calendar work being like okay this these dates we're just gonna gonna take these take this family trip or we're gonna do this like putting putting boundaries and stuff up and um supporting each other in our work and and kind of pushing back against the kind of machine that is the film industry to to try to have space for, for us yeah yeah absolutely i am I, I was asked this question last year when I was on a panel for freelancing at Gen Con and I was like, and I was like, wow, I haven't actually thought about this. So I actually need to think about this. And it was just like me and B Dave who had kids as freelancers. And we were both like, uh, yeah, for me, it was mostly just that when I do spend time with my kids, I make it very intentional. Like I actually put my kids into my schedule book um, because otherwise I just mm. like get overwhelmed with like this never ending list of to do. Uh, because I set my own schedule, so it's like impossible for me to actually divorce. And because I work at home, it can be difficult. Like the other, the flip side of that, it's great to like have access to your family at all times. But at the same time, when you're working, you can end up shutting yourself off for long periods of time because like you're so f- focused on getting everything that you need to get done, and then you can be ignoring your family. At least in my case, I know that I have yeah. you know fallen into that trap because it ha- you have to be really intentional especially working at yeah. home on like COVID. The work never ends. There's always more things to do, you know? So you have to just be like, okay, it's five o'clock or it's seven o'clock or whatever. I am done for the day and turn off lights, you know? Yeah, for me, um, because of the way that my brain works, I was in the military for so long, I never looked into it, but like talking to other people about like how their brains work and stuff. I'm just like, yeah, uh, yeah. Why does my brain work this way? And then like, I'm, you know, talking to people with like ADHD and like autism and like, I have been taking like surveys and stuff and like finding that I'm like definitely not neurotypical. So, um, me, 
uh, for my routine, like I actually started taking like CBD and THC oh. to be able to relax. And it was like, it was like mind blowing. Like the first time, like I uh, took it while I was at home and I just like took a little bit, I would like went into my uh, kid's room and I like did bedtime routine with them, uh, which sometimes I can miss because I work late as I run games. Yep. And I found myself like just awkwardly like weeping as I'm like having this conversation with my son because I was just so present and in the moment and not worried about like the next thing um, that I was just really enjoying that time with my son uh, because of what, uh, you know, CBD and THC was like able to do for me. So sure. um, medicating sometimes can be the answer, but uh, I'm not telling everybody to get high, but <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't hurt well maybe sometimes it does but uh <laughs> no but i think that point of that is just being is like it's a it's a thing you have to put in work into you have to really um i remember being in grad school before i got married and had kids and and seeing you know we at ucla we would occasionally get to you know talk to some famous directors and and, and creative people and i remember kind of looking at them you know i was more kind of focused on being a writer director at that point but looking at them as as models and being like oh here's this director i can i get to you know intern with or whatever and and kind of over and over again realizing like oh this person's not really a good person or this person actually is not really raising their kid or they're not really like they're like seeing these things like oh this person has achieved great success but they actually haven't found the um the balance that and the things that like are really actually pretty important to me in my life. And I, I, and this is not a role model for me, you know, which is devastating, especially when you talk to or you're around directors that you think that you love their work and you're like, this person is awesome. And then you're like, Oh, I don't really want to be this person, you know? And, and uh, anyway, the point is just that it's a thing that you have to kind of work on, I think to manifest, uh, you know, and, and to continually work at, um, you know, uh, stuff that's not your job because the job is so, so intense and will just eat your whole life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, for me, I've been going through this transition lately as far as, um, well, both my gender and then like me going from like, uh, just doing this full-time freelancing gigs that I do and like working in tabletop. And I found that there's this like switch after a certain point, like that where people stop treating you like a person as much as they do a commodity. Mm. And um, there's that realization that I've had in the past six months that like, if I don't value the time that I have with my children and like my partner and like make this time for the people who I actually believe to be my friends and like, make this special time actually meaningful, um, then I'm not going to have anything when I uh, just bury myself in my work and I uh, sort of can get lost in that way. And I think that leads to kind of a dark road, uh, <laughs> ultimately, because like you said, the, the work never ends. You could yeah. just work yourself to death and no one would care at the end of the day. Yeah. And there would still be more work to do, you know, even after you killed over or whatever. Speaking of work, what's like a normal production cycle for you? Like when you build a show and specifically talking about like Dimension 20? Sure. Um, uh, so um, generally I'll get an email or Slack or something from um, from the kind of executive team at College Humor. Um, David Kearns and um, Kyle Rohrbach is the head of production over there. So they'll be like, hey, we got a new season coming up. Uh, these are the dates we think it's shooting. It's it, We think it's going to be a eight-episode uh, season, and this person is GMing. Uh, Jasmine is GMing or whatever, and uh, we're going to use minis, and we're going to have uh, three battles, you know. Uh, and then it's like, great. So then we, we start having meetings um, as soon as possible with the GM to kind of like – just get the get the juice hear the hear the take on it and we kind of like just talk about it and sort of like um uh kind of all pick up the vibe in a way you know it's sort of like a brainstorming type of session and then um we start to build a budget and a calendar um because if we know kind of when we're shooting then we can work backwards to figure out when we need to have things ready by um and then you know knowing that that information the timing as well as like what it is that we're building if it's like a dm screen and three battle maps and some props or whatever we can start to 
estimate um, cost and and start to figure out what kind of labor we're going to need. And then we can sort of put our, and when I say we usually at that point, it's just me and an art director helping me. And then um, we'll start to, to put together a labor plan, you know, like, okay, we're going to need this many model makers and we're going to need a miniatures painter for this time and this and this. And we start to assemble that uh, sketch of, of a plan and, um, and then uh, we have a lot of meetings with with the GM and um, go through uh, battle concepts uh, because for us, you know, we put a lot of into them and they're all kind of like a little like almost like a little movie set piece. Um, and often they have, they're very elaborate and have like, you know, dynamic things. Um, and the other part about our battles is that um, after after we run the game, the um, the director and the production team, they go back and shoot close-ups of the, so they recreate the the battle in like a black box and they sort of, so, um, so that has to be planned for like, oh, the walls have to be removable so you can get the camera in there. Or, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of details to it that are um, part of it. And then um, often we'll do character creation as early as possible uh, once the cast is locked in because, um, you know, it's definitely a, I think it's probably in any game, but but it's a hallmark of D20 is we try to uh, we try to have a full and cohesive arc that lands like in the six episodes that pays off all of the individual player characters arcs, you know. And so a lot of times we'll have like a concept and a setting and a genre. But then once we get into character creation, it's like, oh, maybe this is actually more of like a whodunit than a, you know, um, a heist or whatever, you know. So so that can actually uh, adjust what it is that the season is so then we then we go back to kind of hashing out all these battles and um and then we get into into building it we we source and build all this stuff we work with a lot of different vendors and and uh, spin up our shop our workshop here and we have people in the shop working uh at some point then we um create it all up and uh ship it down to la and i'll go down there and um Usually we have like a week of finishing touches and and then setting up the set proper in the studio and, and loading everything in and kind of getting ready for that shoot. Um, we've been using projections a lot recently. Uh, so that's kind of a new thing that's also an ingredient is like designing projections and, and testing them and stuff. Um, and then we'll shoot and we usually shoot um, a 12 hour day uh, with, so it'll be two episodes a day. So we'll start at like, you know, eight or nine in the morning. And by like 11 cast has gone through makeup and sound and is sitting at the table and we'll shoot, um, for like an hour and change. And we'll take a bio break. We'll shoot for another hour and that'll be the end of that episode. We'll take a bio break and then we'll do, uh, the adventuring party, which party, which is like a talk back, like a 20 minute talk back show. And then we go to lunch and then, uh, the cast um, changes outfits and goes through makeup again and stuff and, get, and gets mic'd back up. And then we do the whole thing again for the second part of the day, you know, shoot a, shoot a full episode and shoot an adventuring party. And usually if it's a shorter season, like maybe like a six episode season or something like that, we'll try to do it consecutive days. So we'll do like three days in a row or four days in a row or five days in a row. But beyond that, the longer series, it's, it's tricky because, um, it's just so much writing and prep work for a GM to be able to, you know, there's some point they just are exhausted and have run out of pieces of railroad to put in front of the train and they just need time. So we'll spread out longer seasons more than that. Um, and then it goes, and then we shoot close-ups of the miniatures if there's miniatures after it's all done um, for a few days. And then uh, they'll go into post-production, which I'm uh, left not really involved in. Uh, and that that's where we create illustrations and graphics and, um, you know, all the sound effects and music and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then it gets released. Nice. Yeah, I think that's something that's very interesting that I didn't know about, for instance, like screenplays and like things like that before, uh, you know, you find out eventually that a lot of these things are sort of templated. They are, they have a sort of set boilerplate way that they function so that people are speaking a certain language. So when you are designing a production set, you are shifting to make sure that you create that template and the pacing is correct for a season. So I think that's very interesting. Have you ever built something and then had someone completely like go left instead of right? Um, and then it just never got seen. And then. Yeah. Well, so, you know, the, we put a lot of effort and money 
uh, into the sets and stuff, right? Into these visual parts of it. So we really don't want to waste any production money. We want all the production, whatever money we have, we want it to all be on screen, you know? So, so it's, it's a thing we really try to avoid. Um, that being said, it's a, you know, the show is improvised still, you know, um, it, and uh, we've definitely done things where, uh, you know, we say like, okay, we're going to have three battles over this six, six episode season, but maybe uh, one of the battles we, we don't use it. Or uh, I think for instance, in, um, in um, coffin run uh, spoilers for coffin run there, there's uh, there's a chase sequence that we didn't use all three of the maps that we, the little mini maps that we had uh, set up because we just didn't have time and kind of didn't really need it. So it didn't, I think they used it in um, maybe some insert shots, but it didn't come out for the players to use. And, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, let's switch the order of these maps because actually we should go to this thing first or, but all, all that being said, you know, generally the GMs that we work with are, are uh, so skilled and so uh, wildly talented that, they can sort of land the land the plane on the tiny little airstrip, you know, pretty pretty well. It's really surprising. Like I, I could think of one time um, in uh, Escape from the Blood Keep where it's it, you know we have this battle map that's ready and it's towards the end of this role play episode. And I know like because like I'm looking at my watch, it's like well they got about ten minutes of of time left in this episode, and then he has to bring out the battle map. But the players decide to get in a portal and go to like. You know, three thousand miles away, and have this long, involved sub adventure because they 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 hooked onto something that was you know maybe not not something where which way Brennan wanted them to go, but you know he validated it. It took them there, and I'm thinking like I know that when they that in ten minutes they're gonna be on an airship battle. I have no idea how that is gonna happen, you know, and and somehow you know he always somehow just weaves it and and it just so seamlessly and suddenly they're on an airship battle, you know. It's just it's like. <laughs> That is the true wizardry of uh, really, really talented GMs, I think. Yeah, definitely. That is uh, the sort of not every, not everyone has to adhere to this, but that is definitely the I have you, you take a left turn, you take a right turn, you you still end up with the dragon in the in the dungeon room. So um, as you are or as someone is uh, GMing for something like uh, Dimension 20, I would imagine that it's really stressful in, in that respect because, of course, you know, the GM meets you if they're like a guest GM or someone and then, like they, they build some rapport with you and they and then they see like all the hard work you put into it and then they're like, and then the players like turn away from that set piece and you're just like, oh shit, oh shit, what do I, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you and I know that like the left door and the right door both go to the dragon, but the players can't feel that, you know, they <laughs> Should never yeah. feel that or know that you know i mean maybe they they know it on a on a like deeper level and and that probably is true on our show that like players kind of know the conceit of it is like oh yeah we have these set pieces and like it's not on rails but we are going to kind of like shoehorn you into this beat but hopefully that beat actually services everything that's happening and all and all the improv that you've done up to that point and to that point we do try to design the battles in a kind of way that we provide a lot of room for improvisation and you know it does happen fully where like we have designed like these bad guys or whatever it are these goblins as like a bad faction and or whatever it is they're the bad guys in this case and then somehow through the role play they're not the bad guys anymore and they're now the good guys and and brennan and i are back there being like okay what other minis can we use you know like trying to 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 pivot you know so we create things in a modular way to still try to give the gm and the players as many tools and things to kind of create the story they want to create uh so it's a really fun actually on the back side that's really fun creatively to try to like predict that and to try to like map out like okay they're going to want to do this and like oh let's put some chains there and let's do this and this because that's what i would want to do or whatever you know yeah i imagine that something like fantasy high would be a little bit easier to work with because you know that you are going to stay within like a certain realm and you have the railings in place to a certain degree, unlike a completely new series, right? What's the difference as far as like your prep work for something like Fantasy High as compared to like a whole new series, like for instance, Blood Keep or Coffin Run? It really varies season to season. Uh, and that's kind of one of the fun things about the job is we go into such different settings, you know, like a, a Fantasy High School or like a Lord of the Rings thing or like a, or like a black and white horror film, you know? Uh, so each one of those, uh, you know, 
a big part of, of being a production designer and working in the art department in film and TV is, you know, you're never working on the same thing twice. And so whenever a new um, setting, a new, uh, you know, film or project comes in, if it's about like, you know, trains from the 1850s, then you have to become an expert about trains from the 1850s. And you also may need to hire some people who are who are experts to advise you. So you, you, you part of the practice of, of this job is becoming like a, you know, a cottage expert in like all these different little worlds, which is also part of what I love about it. You know, I love world building and getting to read a thousand Wikipedia articles and, you know, buy some cool books or whatever to, to educate myself about uh, a setting. Um, yeah, it, it just varies. We, we did a season called Starstruck uh, that um, is based off of some graphic novels that um, Brennan Mulligan's um, mom wrote. Uh, these these incredible like cult classic comics from like the 80s, right? And um, I have a book over here. And, and so the, for that one, it was like reading comics, taking pictures of the pages, trying to understand how the technology worked and what was the currency and the, you know, just like, so it was like a deep dive into this comic versus other things are more kind of ephemeral and you're kind of pulling things. That was very like, this is the lore now, just extract it, you know? Right. Your Google search hits me must be fucking wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's very pretty wild. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite? If you're looking at like, what's your favorite resource to tap into? Like as a production uh, designer, what's your favorite resource to tap into? Like the History Channel or like PBS or like what's what do you end up going back to a lot? I mean, really, for me personally, it's uh, it's a lot of reading online, like reading articles, uh, you know, reading, reading, you know, Reddit or or just like people who who are more knowledgeable than me discussing something. And because and, other people have already asked the questions that I'm asking, it's just a matter of finding the, the, the correct and concise uh, answer. Um, so that and then, you know, I do tons of like Google image searches and create um you know folders and folders of reference uh i have people help me do that sometimes early on we, we kind of create like and then we go back through and like no let's not use that one. Oh yeah this one i really love this part of this and, and um and then yeah we, we i do all watch films too um uh yeah less like less like uh history channel stuff and more kind of like history book kind of stuff or history article kind of stuff you know super cool yeah what was your, since we did talk about Coffin Run briefly, I do have to ask the question, what was your favorite part of working on Coffin Run? And I know some like ephemeral details or like some minor details uh, from talking to Jasmine about this, but I wanted to get your take on it. And like, sure. was, it, was that production different than others? And like, how was it and everything like that? Yeah, well, I would love to hear uh, Jasmine's uh, take on it, you know, uh, looking back, you know, because like we worked together a lot and then we, and then what was over it was over. We kind of, you know, part of ways, whatever. But honestly, I think my favorite thing about that season, well, I guess there was two things. One was just like just getting to work with Jasmine because, uh, you know, that was her first time on D20 and uh, and she just, you know, has a her own unique style i loved how uh like mini centric she was you know right away she was like oh yeah we're doing minis you know well and i was like yes you know um so it was really fun to work with someone who was so kind of minis um psyched and uh also the the ideas and things that she had were just like very out of the box i mean orion was a big part of that too um that that uh collaboration there but like we did a thing we did a mechanic on the final battle where there was like these vials of blood, you know, they were, you know, this is spoilers, but they were reviving Dracula. And, and so there was this cup full of like, I think it was pomegranate juice is what we use, but the, the filling of the cup represented, uh, Dracula being like fully revived in his, thirst satiated and so each time she had these little vials that she would add in but then if dracula took damage she would take a sip out of the cup to lower the level back down it was like a really novel thing you know that you don't really see at a dnd table uh so that was that was i love you know um things like that we can we can add something to to a regular dnd experience and then uh, i just also really like the um i like the the black and white aesthetic you know it was so stylized it's really fun to to do minis uh that are to make a really strong aesthetic choice you know part of the reason we chose that actually was because it was kind of a creative solution because we really did not have a lot of time uh from the time that that spun up i was just finishing another season and and um they wanted to do minis which kind of takes some time to do and uh uh so 
as a solution, like what if we do black and white? Cause it's a lot faster to paint black and white minis, but it also gives this really strong uh, vibe. And, and it was like just a perfect creative solution. So. Yeah. I remember uh, briefly hearing, um, and I believe uh, that they have talked about this publicly or like they've mentioned at least um, that you had a shorter production cycle because you were kind of in between seasons. And uh, that was the, the pitch that uh, D20 liked. Uh, from her most to fit within their your current schedule because D twenty you you all shoot like I believe six to nine months prior right something like that at least um yeah it, it depends on the it, it's definitely like somewhere between like four and nine months or something and it kind of depends on they have a pretty regular um, airing schedule you know so it's like they they just have to keep keep that going but there's a kind of a minimum amount of time that it takes to run post I think it's like four to six months or something. I remember talking to Jasmine about like the kit bashing that you were doing. Did you end up doing a lot of different unique kit bashes for Coffin Run to make that work in a short time that saved you time? Well, you know, because it was um, um, kind of like, I mean, in a way, oftentimes the shows that the seasons that we do for Dimension 20 are so, so much emerging of two disparate worlds like like high, american high school and fantasy tropes you know like there's not a lot of like skater dwarf minis that exist you know <laughs> so that's like kit bashing right or sculpting or some other like more of a, an original genesis versus like just getting something off the shelf that's pre-made for coffin run because it's sort of gas lamp era victorian like there was actually a lot of miniatures that worked so we did do a fair amount of kit bashing in the sense of like we kind of added little tweaks little little sculpted green stuff details to different Different, different things to make it work. Luckily, we were able to use a lot of existing miniatures, which is also helpful uh, with that time frame. Yeah, super cool. So I wanted to turn to some of our community questions. And if you are listening and you want to ask such questions in the future, I do post who's coming up on the show and you can ask these questions and drop them in there. So I've got uh, time for two questions for you, Rick. And Flower Crown Gaming is asking, what part of mini painting do you find that to be the most challenging and what is the most rewarding for you um well thank you for the question um flower crown gaming was it yeah um uh i mean the eyes are really hard you know they just always are uh it doesn't it's like it doesn't matter how skilled you are it's like it's just so tiny of a detail uh that's that's true but um most gratifying I think for me, um, the most gratifying moment of, of whether it's minis or a set, um, a battle set, is is bringing it out to the table and having the cast come in and and look at it and just be you know ooh and ah and and uh, and or or when there's a moment during a battle where something dynamic happens where like a set changes or a new mini comes out that they weren't expecting that that kind of you know is like oh I just love it you know I, that's that's the best for me. Yeah, that feels like that would be just like, oh, they love it. I, you know, <laughs> that's very, great. it's very gratifying. It's very validating. It's, it's good for a creative person. You love, you love it. Yeah, absolutely. And we have another question. Frey asks, what's the recipe for your wolf stew and how did you make it look so good? Howdy, Frey. Thanks for the question. Um, well, you start with, uh, wolf stock and, uh, no, um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, actually, uh, it was uh, mostly Raven Bartlett was the one who executed that. Um, it uh, it was it was a really challenging build. We have not ever built anything quite like that. Um, it involved um, kind of essentially like figuring out what we wanted and then kind of breaking it down, right? So like the the cauldron part of it was sculpted foam. You know, that was a fairly easy part to figure out. Head and paws were um, 3D printed. So so we identified. A, an existing FPL, you know, that someone had 3 sculpted and, and um, reached out to them. And then we, we, we cut the SDL, you know, where we wanted it and, and, and figured out what scale we wanted it to be, had it printed up. And then uh, Shane Brockway, our minis painter, painted that. And, um, and then for the stew itself, um, you know, we did have actually a, uh, a sample up there. My wall, we did it. We did a few samples of it, but um, uh we realized that we needed to actually sculpt all of these, um, the elements individually, you know, so like uh, potatoes and carrots and peas um, and then paint them and then uh, put them in, arrange them in where we wanted them and then do a resin pour uh 
with with tint in it, you know, to to give it some uh, some kind of consistency that's sort of stew like. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the process. It was it was it's it's scary because you're like, okay, this is coming along, it's coming along, but like you know, and then the last step is to pour this like resin all over it, you know, which either is going to work or you got to start over, you know. So so uh, stakes are high, uh, but um, turned out really well. I think if you go to um, if you go to Raven Bartlett's Instagram, you can see uh, on there a bunch of pictures that they took of of the process. Uh, so if you're curious about uh, that, you can you can see more there that feels like i i feel like after listening to that i'm just thinking about what does that excel sheet look like <laughs> for, the, for like every piece that you have and you have all these different elements and uh do you do you sort of use that as like a production designer now to sort of keep things on track and meet your timelines what do you use to sort of organize all that sort of production design well, as a production designer, you use an art director as much as you can, but because it's really it's a full time job, like keeping track of all this stuff and like making all making sure that the paint is there in time and the you know and make, we have to get express shipping on that and this you know it, it's this huge huge effort and then you know there's also a budget that we have to stay on and make decisions about what we can afford um and in, in ways to get stuff done um. Uh, yeah, so so you know we have like a Google Drive usually that um, that that I I and the art director or art director share and um, it has our our we use Google Sheets mainly and has like our budget tracker and a battle maps thing we we used to um, design uh, kind of um, workshop the battle maps back in the day before COVID and before I moved you know Brendan and I would sit in a room with like a big four by eight marker board and we kind of grid it out and be like okay battle one battle two battle three and we would sort of write things in and sometimes you're like oh let's let's take those bad guys and move them over there and what if we move these two you know as like very much like a visual thing but now i've like replicated that on a, a google sheet and we'll we'll share the sheet and do like zoom calls and 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 fill it out that way you know so yeah whatever works you know whatever but but there's definitely a lot of list making and and a lot of kind of administrative computer work to make it all happen. Yeah, definitely. I see a lot of parallels between what I do now for like project management for designing a book uh, for a tabletop book. And also like when I used to be in the military, like one of the last jobs that I had was being uh, an operations chief and like making sure that all the platoons going out when they were going out to missions had what they needed. And then making sure I talk with the platoon commander and the platoon sergeant and making sure that they know what they need logistically to handle this one mission. And then I provide creative solutions when I can't find exactly what they need. So yeah, that, you know, I've never been in the military, but as I understand it, um, the film hierarchy and kind of much, much of the things, the way that a set works and stuff are, are based on military uh, stuff. So it's not surprising to hear that. Okay. Well, that's, no, I have so many more questions. I would need to, I'm going to need to dwell on that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for, for coming on Rick. Uh, before I, let everyone loose. Did you want to talk about anything that you have coming up or anything that you wanted to shed a little more light onto? Um, no, I, uh, you know, thank you so much for having me. Really. It was a pleasure. I enjoy talking about this stuff. Uh, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, no, uh, people can, can follow me on Twitter at Richard H Perry, uh, if, if they want and, um, uh, stay tuned to drop out. There's, many uh there's like three or four seasons that are already done ready to go that are gonna blow people away that's really exciting thank you so much uh rick for coming on thanks so much for listening to the dollars and dragons podcast if you'd like to support me and more importantly my editor who does all of the heavy lifting here then you can subscribe to patreon.com slash is friday and that is gonna go straight to my editor appreciate it thank you so much